Hi, and welcome back to Smart Casual, a podcast by two women who have a lot of feelings about clothes. We're your hosts, Amy Mai and Emma Doe. Hi. So, lots of things have happened in our lives since the last time you've heard from us, but who gets? Let's get stuck into it. (laughs) Today, we're going to have a conversation about made in China and what that means exactly. Now, Chinese manufacturing has changed so dramatically. And while for so long it's been associated with dirty labour, shoddy quality and craftsmanship and poor working conditions, it has really come forward by leaps and bounds. So how does the Made in China label change the way we as consumers view a product and are our perceptions accurate? Hi, I'm Rong Jake Chen and I am currently a co-creative director at Amzander, a menswear label based in Australia and also I'm the business director for a womenswear label called Jonathan Liang. Both are contemporary, so new formats of luxury. So I was really excited to talk to you because the first time I spoke with you like a year ago, I found out that you were really proudly producing clothes in China. And I thought that was quite refreshing because I know a lot of labels try to obscure the fact that they may be manufactured in China. So can you maybe speak a little bit about why you did choose to base production there? I think China is a fantastic manufacturing country. And when it comes to clothing, you really can tap into resources that you don't get anywhere else. Maybe towards Italy and areas of Western Europe, you you get some strong skill sets, strong talents that are passed down generations, generations. But for us in Australia, I find that quite inaccessible. And in reality, China has those skill sets all ready and laid out for you. It's just that uh, a lot of people don't know how to get in touch with these um, platforms or people so for example our sample maker he's been a tailor for over 50 years of his life so ever since he was a teenager and you really can't match that skill up with a country for example sample making in Australia where we're not I guess known for these kind of talents or industries of course the connotation with made in China is still it's a gray area. I find it's a bit of a gray area. You'll notice that a lot of large labels and powerhouses are making in China, but they're being a bit more subversive in terms of how they brand it or how they communicate it. And I think that's just a cultural thing that takes time. Like, for example, when Made in Japan was known as Jap Crap, and Made in China is no longer, I think, associated with poorly made items, particularly clothing. And it's really the other facets of the business that really create the overall image of the brand not just where it's made when you go about you know selling your clothes to stores and such Mm. and they ask you about where you're made do you feel comfortable communicating that I'll be quite honest and that really depends on which country I'm speaking to so where the buyers come from Um, Italians for example are very ethnocentric and they love goods mating within their own country and that's not only just because they respect their own domestic talent but it's also because it's easier from a business perspective Um, VAT imports taxes all that come into play actually in china a lot of our chinese stores that we sell through they want us to be made in china because they can avoid that um, import tax that you get on overseas accessories or apparel Um, and so i would say depending on the the client i'm speaking to 
it would be a little bit different. But to be quite honest, if we're really there to establish a strong relationship and they really want to move forward, of course, I'm going to be completely honest with where we're made because it's not something you can hide. And I'm not ashamed of it. Like I said, I'm pretty happy with how the quality of our products come out. And what about with your customer base? What's their response like? So with us, Modern Contemporary, I would say Amzanda targets a slightly younger audience than Jonathan Leon does. Jonathan Leon is a lot more... Uh, mature in its approach but even between the two market segments so millennials across to someone who's a bit more mature i find both markets aren't so aren't that put off by the location and production especially the younger market more so than the older maybe for example the millennial market they really just care about the visuals and that made in italy or made in france kind of connotation is slowly losing relevance across apparel goods i think potentially it's actually still quite important for things like handbags or shoes but in terms of ready to wear yeah it's quite it's moved past that what is the like the day-to-day interactions with like your factories look like? Like, are you constantly emailing, or does um, your other half look after all of that? Well, it's a little bit different between the labels, but generally speaking, of course, it's communication because you're working in not in the same country, so you have to really make up for that lack of presence with a bit more verbal or uh, visual communication or aids producing in china is very different to how we used to produce in italy we actually used to produce there in that the platforms communication platforms that people use are very different so we still use a lot of wechat in china which has been quite insane i mean we could leave a million voice messages to a manufacturer in one day just because that's what it's needed to to really clarify and ensure that you know the vision is carried across consistently yeah, it's very not very formal, I would say, with a lot of Chinese producers because it's just how, yeah, it's just their culture and you have to fit in within their culture and act within the way that they're used to acting. And um, with like quality assurance, like with your, with both labels, how do you navigate that being um, like cross-continental? Mm. So I travel to Hong Kong and China quite often and when I can, I try to... Um, QC as much as I can but when it comes to bulk it's obviously not possible for me as an individual or my team or my partners to really go around check through things Um, so we hire people and that's just how the it works and it will be the same if you produced in Italy Uh, you'd need QC yeah Um, I'm curious about how you started a relationship with your makers in China. How did you go about finding them? Obviously, you can speak Mandarin, so that's really helpful. Um, But yeah, how did you go about navigating all of that? It either comes from connections or people that I I know, friends who are in the same industry, referrals. Um, Actually, one of our biggest suppliers, who's actually more of a middleman in terms of relationship, he's a good friend of mine, obviously comes into handy. But at the very start, when we were looking for people to meet or people to connect with, we'd go to trade shows, so trade fairs, so producing. So if you're in the market for it, definitely go to Hong Kong or go to wherever you want to produce. And there are a lot of manufacturers out there who are willing to take on new clients. But finding the right one, of course, is a difficult one because, as you can imagine, starting out a new label, your quantities are not up to that quantity that a lot of these houses want. And it's a, it's a bit of a sacrifice for them to take you on. So really convince them and really um, getting them on board is the tough part. 
wondering about how you guys find out about uh, labor conditions and um, how you make sure that yeah all the stuff that you're making is um, made ethically well this is very important to us and of course we take a great focus into making sure that you know nothing like child labor or um, the labor force that we take on are underpaid so we we have contracts in place we meet regularly with the factories um, I've been to factories multiple times and I can I can tell you that the general consensus especially if you're making goods at this kind of quality or uh, price point you're going to have really fantastic conditions for all the workers and that really comes through with you know how much we pay per unit we're not paying what h&m pays for example we're paying a premium and that's also a thing with china um that you have to probably take into consideration is that it's not always going to be the cheapest out there you know i can give you an example some dresses that i make or some tops that i make cost the same as if i made them in italy but because of the access and the ease of communication between the parties i would rather make it in china than italy because a whole lot of caveats and a whole lot of reasons china uh they're kind of trying to i guess not completely move out of like garment manufacturing but they're moving towards you know making like high quality like technology like cars they want to make high quality luxury cars and things and they're trying to move out of move outside of cheap labor do you think this will pose a, a problem at all um not in the short term but maybe in the long term and that's just really how the country wants to invest its resources and move away towards it's never going to go away but of course you know as generations move on you'll see that skill sets change based on your know, education levels um china's becoming increasingly middle class and with that of course labor focused activities like you know sewing are going to disappear and that's just when we have to move with the time and there's nothing wrong with that and that's just how a country works i wouldn't say we're severely attached to the country that we produce in so long we are confident in the quality of product that they could make it at and at a condition for the people that we work with to be you know positive as someone who's never been to china to look at factories can you describe to me what what it is like to to go there and you know are you flying into like shanghai and then like driving out or what does what does that factory town look like not necessarily a factory town i mean there are i haven't gone very rural myself but i do know that there are a lot of um widespread areas that will only have garment making factories within the one area uh the ones that i visited i can describe it as yeah like almost a small town that that one factory would have multiple buildings there's uh residences where people sleep and stay um there is the eating area dining area it's almost like a huge school it is kind of the system they have in place and i do have a friend who has uh whose parents actually own production in vietnam and they have they have about 12 separate sites for manufacturing and um her parents are australian and they produce for nike and adidas and all these crazy large labels and their scale is massive and i've seen the factories they look beautiful they've got like gardens in there they've got you know activity rooms for the workers so it's 
Yeah, the cliche is definitely changing. I think people are becoming more aware of that. And it's also factory workers are becoming more aware of that. They understand that there is a world outside of what they're doing and they can compare between where they're working. So that all comes into play in how all these factories are evolving and um, really becoming quite modern in how they operate. Actually, going back to your last question about how we're moving away from, say, apparel production, I was at a business of fashion conference in China, in Shanghai, and one of the speakers was a one of a large producer, and they were a huge manufacturing company with very, very strong supply power. These companies are actually innovating within themselves quite a lot. So they're investing in sustainability, they're investing in a lot of um, standards that are creating, paving the way for the industry, manufacturing industry in China. So they themselves have established their point of difference within the market and because of that they're actually creating more of a direction for the other suppliers to take on and i think that's what's going to happen there's going to be some dominant players and the smaller ones may fade away in the background but the the industry will always remain in in china from a manufacturing perspective um base change the changes innovations within the industry do you mean like in terms of like sustainability and like or like the technologies that they're they're using or everything i mean <laughs> the um the business of fashion conference it was in chinese so it's hard for me to keep up because my chinese isn't so fluent but uh yeah it was mainly about how sustainability they're paving the way for sustainability and technologies yeah mm-hmm. yeah I guess that in China they're looking to hopefully improve conditions not only for the workers but I guess the people around it like everyone that's that lives around all the factories and stuff they are also directly affected by like you know the chemicals that they put into dyeing and things like that so hopefully that's what they're moving towards with all the like bigger companies making these changes and I guess everyone's looking at China now in in this climate they're looking at what doing in terms of production and manufacturing um i don't know where that was going i wasn't turning oh i think it's just like a a double sorry yeah yeah it's like a double-edged sword as well because the the things that we hear in the media that are negative connotated to china production comes from those mass labels and they're the ones really pushing their agenda onto these factories and i think change really has to come from them because once they establish and they're because they're such a huge portion of a factory say revenue per annum they have to make sure that they're selected with their suppliers and they they really push them in the right direction one of our um, manufacturers i'll give you an example they produce um goods for mattel so barbie and you know they've been doing it for years but every year, and I think that comes from social pressure, society is really pushing their agenda and then in turn influencing that manufacturer to have more sustainable practices. And then they push their manufacturing to adhere to their guidelines or they'll lose that contract. So it comes from you know individuals and us and we talk about it now. And I think it's becoming more and more of an issue. And as much as that becomes more of an issue, then you know, these larger brands who actually have the power to change will push it forward, hopefully. But, you know, that connotation, it's quite difficult because it's not just clothing that's made in China. There's all sorts of products being made in China and there's all those horror stories in the past. That's why we associate it so negatively. You know, that power port exploding, that phone exploding, um, everything's exploding. But um, we draw on these experiences and we put it into that label, don't we? 
But in reality, the apparel, it's a different industry and they operate just separately. So that's why Made in China, I think, is quite difficult because you're drawing from so many different experiences in creating that definition. So even if the mass market brands do push their individual environmental agendas upon those manufacturers, the industry as its whole has to move towards the whole entire manufacturing industry, sorry, has to move towards that um, better standardization and meeting of um, quality assurance. And I think it's getting there because um, these standards, government standards, import, export kind of standards are improving so these products are more fit for consumption. Well, I was going to wrap up with the question, what does made in China mean to you? But if you feel like you've already answered that in the last question. (laughs) Sorry, I'm jumping the gun quite a bit, aren't I? Um, It can mean a whole wondrous set of things. But like I said, it's only just one facet of the product. The whole, especially from a designer brand perspective, it's one small perspective. Whereas, you know, other things such as, you know, fabrication, the cut, the the brand experience, the imagery, all come into play in how um, a brand is perceived. So it's important still i think maybe in some consumer sets but for us towards the younger side of the market i think it's definitely shifting towards something a bit more yeah positive and because we've all been in that position where we've bought something made in china and we're happy with the quality or quite amazed by the quality and do do you think that made in china will one day actually be cool um that's really it really depends on how the government the chinese government really you know shifts their resources just like Again, like the example with Made in Japan, how the, it was the Japanese government that really pushed for a rebranding of what Made in Japan meant for the world. Yeah. It's out of our hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for being so generous with your knowledge. My pleasure. I'm also Made in China, so that's why. <laughs> So while running your own luxury label has its own separate concerns and um, pressures, working within the fast fashion industry is a whole other beast. I'm Imogen um, and I was working for an Australian uh, fashion retailer as a textile designer. I was working a lot with um, print, embroidery, embellishment for product that gets sold like around the world, like Australia. Um, And then we have a Northern Hemisphere collection. So we do um, product specific um, for China as well. I think Amy and I are interested in particular about the way that you work with factories overseas, that you worked with factories in China, is that Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah, so we were thinking, you know, what's how do you go about your daily job if there's a language barrier, for example? We were lucky we had our own office in China, Um, so we had a team there that could, first of all, speak English, but I guess, like, sort of knew the design language that was relevant to our company. I guess the big barrier was the printer, the office that we would work with were like the middleman, I guess. Mm. They would sort of outsource to the correct mill. So, you know, if you were printing on like a sheer fabric, you would have to sell, send your print to a printer that only worked or like specialised in printing on sheer fabrics. Um. But then if you wanted to print on like a cotton or a linen, you would send it off to a completely different printing mill. 
their English wasn't strong. Mm. So obviously they would communicate in Chinese and then that would get communicated with us. Sometimes there was a little bit of a barrier between the printer then to the product China the team. Produc- yeah, yeah, our China team, like the production assistants and things like that. But usually it was like the communication was fine. You know, we really took that for granted. The whole time I was there, I was like, oh, like, you know, I don't even know how to say thank you in Chinese. <laughs> like, you know, good morning or like, thank you. Like, I really yeah. appreciate, like, you know, that print came back really nice in the end. Thank you for that extra bit of work. Yeah. What was the pace of work like at this company? Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, say if we were doing stripes, like, you know, you could smash out like, I don't know, 30 stripes in an hour, but then maybe two get chosen something. Um, you know, the, the Southern Hemisphere collection, the Northern Hemisphere collection, the China retail collection. Yeah. Um, It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of product. We would buy artwork to make it easier and you could just, you know, as soon as you buy the swatch, you get sent the file and you can have it sent to the factory the next day. And then what's the turnaround once you send it to the factory? Once we send it to the factory, it would usually, our first strike-off would usually come back within two weeks. Um, If it was screen printed, um, could be like three to four weeks Um, and probably a similar time for like any embroidery or embellishment. At least with the um, like digital printing, um, you know, they just upload the file and press print and it comes out the other end. But I guess like <laughs> screen printing, like they've got to mix up all the individual colours. They've got to convert the artwork onto several screens. Um, so it's quite labour intensive. So when you're like, when you want to rush this garment with this print on it into store like ASAP, you don't really have a chance for it to go wrong. No. Like you kind of have to really accept the first or second strike-off that you get back to make... Sorry, what's strike-off? Sorry, the strike-off is a swatch, like a swatch that they've printed. Yeah, like a test swatch. Right. If everyone's doing, like, you know, like Python prints or something at the moment, it's just like, oh, well, we don't have enough Python. We need to do, like, this (laughs) type of Python, like a a tonal, coloured tonal Python or something. We don't have that. So it's like, get it in as soon as Mm. possible. So this episode, we just wanted to address, I suppose, the stigma around the label of Made in China. Obviously, a lot of big fashion companies make in more places than China. But I'm wondering what your, yeah, what your perceptions and thoughts about Chinese manufacturing were before this job yeah. and, what, and if they've changed. I guess sort of already working in the industry, like you, you, I was already sort of aware of the standard of Chinese manufacturing people think it's like bad quality or like cheap like it's got bad connotations but actually in fact like it's it's not that cheap anymore to manufacture in China it's quite expensive mm. when i say expensive i don't think it is expensive but you but know comparatively comparatively yeah. like as opposed to you know like if we're if we've got some like high volume products like say t-shirts or something like that they'll probably go to Bangladesh because like China have like like amazing infrastructure they can afford all the best new machinery like to do something that's purely just high volume like mm. you're not going to send it to them because there's you know say like Vietnam or Bangladesh they can certainly compete with price but not quality and I guess mm-hmm. it's just if it's pure volume that you're going for quality is probably not sort of up 
there in mm. like if you're selling a five dollar t-shirt yeah yeah you're like, not gonna yeah ex- yeah from business it's more about the margin is. than yeah. like yeah. the quality whereas like you know if we were doing a dress with like nice embroidery or beading on it if it was if it did come in too expensive we might just take some of the beading off they've got the the machinery and you know they've got the the skills there to do that yeah yeah uh, whenever, whenever like samples come back and they're not right, I'm always like I always feel really bad. And in my emails, I'm always very apologetic because I don't want the other person on the other end to feel like they've like done something wrong. Yeah, because I know how high pressure their job yeah. is, and they're always they're always incredibly apologetic. I'm like, it's it's okay. Yeah. I know that your job is much more stressful than mine. Yeah, so. it is. Like there is like this sort of kinship between both of you because like you're on the same team and I think Mm. that's something that a lot of people in our office would forget like we work for the same company we're on the same team we both want to get the results we both want this coming back correct Mm. but I feel like there was a bit of a blame culture where I worked so it was like okay this has come back it's the it's the disconnect I guess of also like not seeing the person yeah, you're never talking, like I've never talking to. Yeah, um, like I'd never, I, I wouldn't even know what they looked like. Like mm. you know, there wasn't like a photo or anything like <laughs> on their like email, like yeah, on yeah, their email it, or anything like that. It definitely makes it easier for I guess the people higher up to to play that blame game because <laughs> it really feels like this sort of black hole. Like you're just like sending this design off into cyberspace (laughs) yeah yeah and then it just magically comes back Mm. and you know I'll have a screen printed swatch in front of me and I'll just be like okay someone had to separate the colors out of that artwork that I gave them like expose it onto a screen like mix like 12 different colors and then like physically screen print it for this to come back and to be wrong it's a miracle if anything comes so, back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me anyway. I'm just like, how did this happen? Um, so, like, I guess having done that process before, you know, you do appreciate like the work that goes into it. Mm. What do you think the future of Made in China could look like? I guess it's probably quite exciting for them because manufacturing can get more niche. You know, the I guess been doing the volume for so long, like they've got the money to reinvest in like new technology, like sustainability, they can pay their workers more and that's, I guess, beneficial for them because paying your workers more, like, they're going to be more efficient, mm. probably stay in the company for longer, become more skilled. I don't know, I never thought about this, but, like, how cool is it? Like, if you're a, Chi- like, if you're a Chinese designer, you've got, like, the best local manufacturing or, like, mm. one of the best, like, manufacturing industries in the world for, you know at your disposal. This whole movement around Made in Australia specifically is kind of sits in opposition very, very directly to Made in China. You know, all the campaigning that goes around buying local products means, you know, you should be shunning anything with a Made in China tag. Yeah, I think what Made in Australia is trying to do in a consumer's mind is 
remind people that anything made overseas is of a lesser quality, um, produced under unethical conditions. Um, you know, that's obviously true in some cases. Like, of course, sweatshops do exist in China, but that's, you know, it's, it is changing and there's a whole variety of, the, of production in China now from low end to luxury, like we talked about before. Um, Prada, Miu Miu products in China for quite a few years now. And I think further to that, like there's a nostalgic view among um, local labels that perhaps things were better in the good old days when things things were made in Australia, um, that you know that everyone was treated fairly and such. But that's actually not the case. Yeah, there's like it's almost like a kind of erasure of like the terrible working conditions that some people definitely had to work under and it's not it there's no acknowledgement acknowledgement of what happened like my auntie worked in as a seamstress and it was definitely not it was definitely not what it's like now for some local labels like she worked really 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 hard and for not very much money mm. i mean it's a great thing that local designers are aware of this stuff now and like you know they they want a champion made in australia and have that mean that people are paid correctly and you know have good working standards um but the made in australia of what 20 years ago or in its heyday was still filled with actually like sweatshops and out workers working to the bone for very little pay as your auntie might have um I think more people will learn that ethics and quality and made in China are not mutually exclusive terms you can have all of those things yeah absolutely um, I thought it was really interesting how um, Rong's point that um, the younger consumer, they're focusing less about where the clothing production occurs and more about the look and the story and the, the branding that happens around a fashion label. Yeah, as you said, the made in Australia, or at least the local dialogue and the local narrative is, is really strong and um, it's so integral to a lot of brands in in Australia I see a few brands go hard on the made in Australia part of their brand and their clothes you know in my opinion aren't very good um but they kind of try and leverage like you know some sense of worth of being made in Australia and then I see like other brands that make really great clothes that I could imagine heaps of people buying which are actually made in China but they would never ever market the fact that they are made in China because that that could be damaging to their brand. I see a lot of brands that do um, on their garment labels uh, designed designed in Melbourne made ethically in China um, to try and kind of lessen the stigma a little bit which is which is interesting but not totally necessary. Our favourite segment. Our favourite segment. And Amy's been holding on to these topics that she's wanted to talk about for so long. And by the time we release it, they may not be newsworthy. Um, but we're going to talk about them nonetheless. Yeah. So, first on the first list. on the chopping block, I really want to talk about hashtag Camgate. A hashtag that I created on Instagram. Did you but, really? <laughs> well, I don't think it was there. But then I made it and it actually linked to this really funny photo. I think it was like someone at a dentist and it was their open mouth something like that anyway, okay that's totally not related to what we're about related, to talk about but um yeah hashtag camgate so jesse cam who's a uh, american-based 
women's clothing label mostly made her name through making these uh, the sailor pant or the cam pant and the silhouette is a fitted high waist in the waist and wide-legged pant made from a really sturdy cotton canvas they were they were like based on a vintage sailor pant and um they're they're like nearly 600 australian um depending on the conversion rate of the day and i think she only goes up to a size 12 australian um so quite exclusive in size and price and she made a post on her instagram calling out madewell which is a u.s mid-tier brand i'd say so like obviously her pant is like a cult fashion item the campaign has a cult following yeah Yeah, and lots of brands um lower down the scale Mm. have um copied or done their own version and she called madewell out on instagram because she did a google she posted a screenshot of a google search for campaign i think it was her brand along with like madewell um the reformation and i think everlane maybe came up in the google as a suggested place to buy the product yeah yeah and she um called them out for using her brand name it just like caused a huge controversy on instagram for lots of reasons i think we should maybe explain because i think I'm not sure if people understand how Google ads are placed, but basically Jessie was outraged because anyone who typed in Jessie Cam Pant would see the results from all these other brands, which means that I think this is how it works. I think the other brands would have had to buy ads on Google under the search term Jessie Cam Pants. So in effect, she thought they were like piggybacking off of her designs. I also think that Google Google's algorithms are just so smart that it's also figured out that people who are looking for jesse cam pants uh also would also be looking for other versions and it's just bringing up the most relevant um items so like even in that screenshot i think like an unrelated item like a dress from some other brand came up so we need an IT person to set the record straight. But. Yeah, so I do think that there was a bit of like dodginess from some of the brands that use her name, but also I just think that's just how Google works. Um, but it like it just set off a huge comments frenzy from people who were defending Madewell because Jessie Cam, because of her size range and her price range, are just pricing a lot of people out. People were calling her out on her sizeism and also like people were just like, you just use white skinny models. I think people needed a place to vent all of these pent up feelings about the brand. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how a lot of people said, you don't cater to me, so that's why I've had to buy what you call a copy from Madewell. And there were also heaps of people who said, look, you don't own the wide-legged pants. Yeah. <laughs> like, off. stay in your lane. Um, I think what fascinated me most was just her responses to the to all of the outrage and all the backlash. Um, she said that she was a small label, so I can kind of see why she felt the need to really defend her label. She really should have just left it, but then she just kind of dug herself into a corner and posted this collage of all of the, like women of colour that she has featured. And no women of size. Like yeah. yeah they were outside still, of a size six or eight, right? They were still like skinny models, but just women of colour. And I was just, I just cringed, but also laughed 
because I was like, oh. it's like I have black friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is yeah. so cringy. Yeah, I think it was a a good lesson in how not to address criticism. I mean, good on her for like not blocking comments and not deleting comments and yeah. doing that kind she of really stuff. She really tried to engage. Yeah, she just engaged in a poorly thought out way. And now the posts have been removed from her Instagram. I th- oh, did they? Yeah, I checked before <laughs> and she's just deleted them. So I think she's learned a huge lesson. Yeah, but is she going to produce her pant in a in a bigger size range? I don't think so. I, I've, one of the most um, vocal people on her comments was like a plus size fashion blogger. She wrote on her own Instagram that she'd emailed Jesse about producing in larger sizes and their response was um, that they had no interest in scaling up their brand, which was a kind of cold response. I think it was prior to this whole controversy, but I don't see it happening. Let's talk about something positive. Fashion resolutions for 2019. Um, I just want to put my money towards towards women and people of colour. I want to support them in their endeavours and, yeah, support them with my money if I, when I have it. I think someone needs to create an index because, you know, you don't always know which brands are owned by people of colour or not. You know, they don't always put up their names or photos and whatnot. Yeah, because I don't really know that many, but whenever I see a, like, person of colour in fashion, I'm like, oh, my God. No, I think there are so many. I think there are really so many. And they might not necessarily be in the design role, but they might be mm. in, um, I don't know, any other role. Production, in business, business et cetera, et cetera. There's, I mean, there's always going to be a maker yeah. <laughs> of colour who touched any of your clothes. So That's very true. Yeah, but that's cool. I like that. Your resolutions, um, My Emma? resolution, uh, I really dislike making resolutions because I don't keep to them. But yeah, this year I managed to buy solely secondhand. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, yeah, from Facebook or from thrift stores and stuff. That's so um, I'd like to continue that. Um, and I'd also like to not dress like a slob at work. Because <laughs> I don't know if you see me on a regular work day, but I mean, it's great that I work in an office where you can just wear your worst jeans and your shittiest t-shirt. But it's how I look on a regular day. So whenever I tell people that I'm interested in fashion, they're just like, oh, cool. <laughs> really? It's like that Devil Wears Prada where he's like, that's what you're wearing <laughs> to your interview? <laughs> no, there's a great meme. Um, the first one is like someone who enjoys fashion and the second one is like someone who like knows too much about fashion and can only muster this kind of an outfit now. <laughs> I'm not, ex- I'm, I can't explain memes. I'm just going to have to put it up because that was a really bad explanation. I'm sure it is. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. See you um, hopefully, I don't know. In the new year. Can't promise anything. But we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.